Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. We are here with our, I want to go notorious producer, Nathan Yoder. Um, We love the work that he does. And I am here with one of our guests, one of our staff members from uh, Browncroft, also a master of social work graduate, the fabulous Alyssa Matz. Hi, Peter. I'm glad to be here. I know. This is second episode in a row. Let's go. Lots of fun. (laughs) Well, uh, one of the reasons we have Alyssa... um, she does have a passion and a skill with mental health. And today's question I think is super powerful. We'll be asking, why won't my anxiety go away? We'll be talking to author and pastor from Southern California, Jason Cusick. Uh, and he wrote the book, The Anxiety Field Guide. Before I go any further, though, I just want to remind you, we have a partnership with InterVarsity Press. If you, after following listening to this episode for the first two weeks, you can type in Why Guide and get 30% off. So we got to throw that in there. But Alyssa, this is a great topic. I love this question. I'm not anxious, so I don't know. Are you anxious? I'm a little anxious. (laughs) Anyway. Maybe Jason can help me. (laughs) Well, Jason, we are so glad you're here with us today. I can't wait to hear more about your story and about um, the anxiety field guide that you wrote. Um, But first, how about you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Say a little bit about who you are and what's your story. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So yeah, I'm a I'm currently serving as a pastor in Southern California of a church called Journey of Faith. Uh, my my background is in hospital chaplaincy. So I worked as a hospital chaplain for over ten years, kind of at the bedside with people going through all different kinds of things. And um, uh, went to school at Talbot School of Theology out here in Southern California at Biola University. And I'm married. Uh, this year it's, uh, just last week, 28 years married, uh, and I got three kids and so navigated through all that stuff. And, um, so yeah, it's great to be with that's, that's the basics of me, I think. So great to be with you. You know, before we dig deeper, you know, we interviewed, um, Steve Cuss, uh, who wrote the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And he has the same path as you did. He, he was a hospital chaplain, then became a pastor. Uh, before we jump, what's up with hospital chaplains and anxiety? Like, what's unique about that role that kind of, helped, like, at least springboarded you to be passionate and write about it? Well, I, I don't know what did that with uh, Steve, but um, I... I felt called to kind of care for people at the bedside for uh, uh, years ago and for quite a while. And it was really a lot of my main formation as a, as a minister and as a person. And I think there's something really powerful when you get the opportunity to just get in the trenches with people and deal with a lot of the messiness and unpredictableness of it and the, the lack of, of certainty that comes with it. You just kind of got to learn to, to ride the waves and think on your feet and stuff like that. Um, so I, I, I think it's an amazing, amazing kind of ministry and opportunity that I had. I don't, it's a good question. Like, how does that connect to us? People are thinking about and writing about anxiety. Certainly we saw a lot of it. Um, I think, I think me writing about it had more to do with my own personal crisis with anxiety than it had to do with, uh, being a chaplain, I felt like maybe maybe I was a lot less anxious when I was a chaplain, and then I got into this job, and now I'm more anxious. <laughs> well, that's a that's a great segue to um, you know you wrote the book, the Anxiety Field Guide uh, to uh, the Anxiety Field Guide, 
But I, I guess what I'm kind of curious about, because, you know, as we did a pre kind of interview conversation, you like landed, why won't my anxiety go away? You're talking as someone that still has anxiety. So what's different about Jason today than 20 years ago in terms of your relationship with anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the main difference is I, I became aware that a lot of the stuff I was dealing with was anxiety related. So I had a lot of struggle with like pornography and sexual addiction. And I kind of looked at that like, oh, that's, that's temptation. But I actually think that that was an attempt for me to deal with a lot of thoughts and feelings that I, I didn't know how to deal with any other way. Um, I think my people pleasing, this kind of survival skill that I have of people pleasing <laughs> was also a way for me to manage my anxiety. Um, and then moving into the job that I have just with a lot more increased responsibility and a lot more kind of out front leadership, uh, I kind of hit a wall with my anxiety. So I would say probably the, the big difference is one, being aware that I have anxiety and then two, learning how to not get rid of it but to learn how to tolerate it and minimize it. Because I think that once I started realizing I was dealing with anxiety, my idea was, okay, how can I get rid of this and never deal with it again? But what I learned through the process is that's not actually what happens with anxiety. Anxiety isn't something you have and then you get rid of. Anxiety is something that you have and you learn to steward. You learn to manage it. And you learn how to tolerate it in a way where it doesn't impair your life anymore. And I think that's the place that I'm at now to a degree more than it was before. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. My question for you is you said you were dealing with anxiety. You um, have gotten you've learned to live with your anxiety instead of forgetting that it's there or trying to get rid of it completely. What was the biggest lie maybe that you, when you were dealing heavily with anxiety that you were believing and what is a, a lie that other people may be believing um, those who struggle with anxiety currently? I think, um, I think the, the biggest and probably the first thing that I dealt with is this lie that somehow I'm choosing to be anxious. And I think what that did is it just elevated my shame. I mean, I was having insomnia, I was having panic attacks, and I kept thinking, well, if I could just do something different because I'm, I'm, I'm being anxious. You know, I have plenty of people that would quote the Bible and say, do not be worried, do not be anxious. And, and those are great verses. They imply a, a degree of choice, but I didn't feel like I had a lot of choice in it. I think the thing that helped me the most is realizing that a lot of what I was experiencing with the anxiety was biological. It was kind of natural self-protective mechanisms in my brain that had just gone awry. Um, and so learning a little bit about the neuroscience behind that 
threat center in the brain, the amygdala, and learning a little bit more about how it's like that, that alarm is just going off in my head. I'm not choosing for that alarm to go off in my head, but I can manage it differently and maybe help it not to go off as much, or maybe when it does go off, not pay attention to it as much. You know, I want to come back to that science. I think it's pretty powerful, but you said something that I've never heard anyone say. You said, I want to steward my anxiety. What, what does that mean? I don't know. I just made that up. Um, (laughs) I think, (laughs) well, I think about it. Like when I think about my, my struggles with anxiety, I feel like it's probably very similar to struggles with temptation that I have in other areas of my life struggles with, you know, temptation towards selfishness or anger or despair. And none of those things I say, God, may I never be despairing again. You know, God, would it, would you just remove all of my selfishness? It's like, no, this is kind of here to stay. I probably need to kind of, kind of care for this and manage this. Like I manage all the other parts of my humanity. And, And if I'm uniquely vulnerable to anxiety, then I probably just need to give care and attention to that area in a way where it, it, it doesn't overwhelm me and doesn't get out of control. And I think that's actually what Jesus was talking about when he said, you know, don't worry, look at the, look at the trees, look at the birds, things like he wasn't saying, okay, pray. And then your worry will be gone. He's, he's saying rather take your worry and then invite God into that and reflect on what God is doing with you. And that's the invitation to your worry being less. So I, I guess that's what I mean by it, of stewarding a little bit rather than trying to extinguish it or get rid of it. Because I think that's a Christian default um, that a lot of people have. Like, oh, I have this problem. Let me pray it away rather than let me figure out who I am, you know, with this. Man, that's that's so po- – I'm, I'm so glad that, that you responded that way because – I mean, my next question is, because you're kind of saying if I'm stewarding it, I'm realizing it's not going away. And there, I mean, and we can get into this later. The anxiety is helpful sometimes. Like, you know, if I'm at a ledge and I'm standing too close, that's actually helpful anxiety. I probably shouldn't be. But there's a verse in the Bible, and I love how you talked about Jesus. But I, I want to go to the verse that's probably quoted most often of anxiety. It's, be anxious of nothing, but in everything, prayer and supplication. What do people get right about that? And what do people get wrong? Because obviously you've reflected on that a lot. Yeah. The, the thing about the brain is that, that we are hardwired by God for anxiety. And maybe we would say healthy anxiety. Like you said, you're on the edge of a cliff. You're walking down a dark alley at night and you hear somebody behind you. Um, you're in your house and you hear a noise, your heart rate immediately begins to increase. Adrenaline comes uh, through your body. Your eyes dilate so that you can see more. And all of that is automatic. Thank God. Thank God you don't have to say, 
come on, eyes, dilate so I can see more clearly in the dark. You don't have to do that at all. It just happens. So God's designed us for healthy anxiety. But we live in a fallen world. So sometimes our anxiety gets triggered when it doesn't need to be triggered. Or it gets triggered for a good thing, and then the, and then the, the thing leaves, and the anxiety is still going. Um, or we can get triggered just even what appears to be randomly. We don't even understand why. So I think when the, that verse, be anxious for nothing, um, I think what Paul is saying there is, again, an invitation to give our anxieties to God, to do something different with them. Because it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't just say, be anxious for nothing. Then there's a series of instructions after that to be grateful, to be thoughtful of things that are good and pleasing and, and, and praiseworthy. So there's intentional mindfulness, if I can use that word, um, that Paul is instructing the anxious person to step into in order to address the anxiety. And of course, what we know about anxiety research and stuff like that, a lot of it is small but significant shifts of mindset and perspective, which is kind of what Paul is getting at in, in his letter and, and in kind of that ancient wisdom. And if anybody was dealing with, we go, oh, we're in unprecedented times of anxiety. I think first century was a lot worse. Uh, Jesus, Paul, he, they're being persecuted. Christians are being killed. The Roman government is oppressing. There's poverty. There's disease. There's no hospitals. You know, like like it was a bad time in that. So they have plenty of anxiety back then. Um, but they navigate it by, rather than saying, don't be anxious, just suppress that. I think the alternate is, okay, you're anxious. Invite God into that. Experience a new relationship with God through that struggle or through that difficulty. Um, let that weakness, uh, if we can call it that, or that vulnerability or that sensitivity, let that lead you to finding strength in God. Um, and I think that kind of eliminates the shame part of it, um, or at least it has for me. Mm. Wow, that's good stuff. Um, as someone who struggles with anxiety myself, I've already learned so much, and you've only been here for 15 minutes. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Wow, uh, that's great. But as you were saying, anxiety can manifest itself in many different ways. Everyone who struggles with anxiety, it looks different in everyone's life. It, anxiety for Peter doesn't look like anxiety for Alyssa, which doesn't look like anxiety for Jason. I was just wondering if you don't mind, would you mind sharing a little bit what about what your anxiety in your life may look like? Yeah, I think some of the things, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, insomnia and, and um, uh, and panic attacks. I think probably the the most normalized expressions of anxiety for me is uh, ruminating, kind of that uh, circular spinning out in my head, uh, doing the what ifs and the I shoulds, um, an inability to to stop that spinning out thinking in my head. Um, I really identify with a a kind of obsessive compulsive disorder uh, called pure O, which is a pure obsessional 
uh, disorder would be meaning, you know, I don't wash my hands repeatedly. I don't check locks repeatedly. I don't order things, but I just think about stuff repeatedly. And I go over stuff in my the classic overthinking. So I think overthinking is one of those things. And then of course, um, with that comes like body uh, responses. So I, I have restless leg stuff, I'm, I'm bouncing, I'm fidgeting. Um, and then, you know, just tummy problems too. I end up, I think, uh, I think having an upset stomach, I think for my first four years in this job, uh, I was just anxiety lived in my head and in my gut. Um, and so it really affected me that way. Those are probably the, the most common things that even I experience to this day, I can kind of tell when the, when my brain is going, um, even as, even as I'm sitting here, so I'm on my laptop right now and there's a program that just started on my laptop while we were talking and I'm not sure what it is, but I can hear the motor running in my laptop. If I went in my activity monitor, it would tell me, oh, this program is open and it's running. My brain kind of does the same thing every once in a while. It's like a humming. It's like, oh, I got this thing going. So trying to learn some new skills to kind of calm my brain and my body down when, when I get anxious. You know, I, I loved how you shared that because I think you and I are different. You know, you did talk about some physical manifestations of anxiety, but what, how would you delineate when I get anxious, I do more. Um, it's not necessarily like a thinking and actually I'd be curious with Alyssa too, like, you know, I will produce more, I'll send more emails, I'll, um, I'll clean, I'll like there, there's more of an action anxiety or, you know, I'll pace, but for you, you talked about a thinking anxiety where sure I can see you, um, I can see you tapping, you know, if you were, um, can't see you doing that right now, but like, you know, when you think of manifestations with people, like what's the difference between someone with thinking anxiety and then physical anxiety, someone that, that does more, um, you know, cause even it sounds like with you, your thinking kind of leads you more potentially, I could be wrong to procrastination, whereas someone else is, no, I'm just going to get it done. Like talk about the differences as you've seen that with people. Yeah. Maybe a good way to frame it is the, the four different kinds of responses when we perceive a threat, right? Like in life in general, uh, that part of the brain I described, the amygdala is like the threat center of the brain. And so when we perceive a threat, there's four, four common responses that we have. So it, we know, we know the first three pretty well. It's, it's, it's fight, flight, and freeze, right? So some of us, and it could be different for some things. Maybe I'm, I, I, when I get panicky or I feel a threat, I fight. That might mean a lot of talking. It might mean a lot of doing. It might mean a lot of action. But at the same time, other things, it might be flight, meaning I got to get out of here. I got to leave. You know? um, freeze is I can't do anything. You know, I'm just paralyzed. Um, and then the fourth one is something that that just kind of got put out there in the in the professional realm. And, and to match all the, the Fs, uh, they call it fawn. 
and fawning is people pleasing. So I feel a threat and now I have to go make sure that everybody's happy. Um, and it, with um, relational OCD, it's, it's a form of checking. It's called reassurance seeking. And so uh, it's like, oh, I'm panicking. Let me make sure that I didn't offend this person or this person or this person. And let me go check all of my relationships. So I think for some of us, not only physiological, but it might be just a natural or a learned response to a threat that we either fight or fight or flight or freeze or fawn. And maybe we fall into those different categories, different, given different relationships and different situations. So I think that a good step in identifying, okay, what is my anxiety? What, what triggers my anxiety? And then what is my response to those specific triggers? Identifying that can kind of help us figure out, okay, then how do I respond differently? What, what would be an alternate response? Uh, not how can I shut down my body's natural or learned reactions to a threat, but how can I manage them differently, especially if they're not real threats? Wow, that that's really helpful. So I, I want to kind of come back because I, I talk to a lot of people that talk about people pleasing. So, and I'm sure Alyssa is going to have some thoughts on this too. For you personally, what's the line of I'm doing this to be helpful versus the line of I'm doing this to please someone to help my anxiety? What does that look like in your brain? Oh my gosh, that is the grayest, most confusing <laughs> line in the world. I mean, that's what I'm always having to kind of check, you know, like as I'm, I'm interacting with people, how much of it is really about serving them and how much of it is about giving myself a sense of peace with what's going on. Um, I think in the short term, I've been, what I've been trying to do is resist the urge to comfort myself. Um, cause there are times when I'm looking to see how somebody is doing. And sometimes I'm, I'm looking for a response that will make me feel good. And that's usually a good warning sign for me that maybe I'm asking or checking on them for me, not for them. So allowing myself to continue to have a sense of discomfort and being a little bit more strategic about why I'm asking and, and who I'm asking. And I have people in my life. I think the other part too is surrounding myself with people who understand what I'm dealing with, that I can check with them. I have people on my team that I'm like, Hey, I'm kind of concerned about how I said this. Should I go back and follow up and check? And sometimes they go, yeah, that would be a good thing to do. And other times they go, nope, they're fine. And I'm like, I'm not fine. And they're like, okay, well then go get fine. Because you don't need to, you don't need to bring your need back to the team. And maybe that's a little, a little bit of the challenge, not only of, of if we fall into Enneagram language, it's, it's not only a challenge for us fives. <laughs> yeah. Fives are all in their head, right? But also twos, twos are often 
trying to meet other people's needs, but it's often meeting their own needs. So being able to check that to say how much of this is really about the other person and how much of it is really about me feeling valuable or needed or, you know, something like that. Mm. Mm. I'm a nine over here, so (laughs) I get what you're saying completely, (laughs) completely. Got to keep it calm. Got to keep everybody happy. Yeah, everyone's good. If everyone else is good, then I'm good. Oh, my gosh. Right. 100%. (laughs) So that really makes it difficult to serve people. Um, I mean, that's kind of the the invitation that each of our types has to say, how can my serving be not completely selfless because all of our serving is is connected to us and it has value to us, but um, particularly, how can I serve people and love them even if there is not an emotional reward for me in the process. Especially with like a nine or a two, how can I allow people to be uncomfortable appropriately and live in that discomfort? And and how do I manage my discomfort with their discomfort? Because we have to let people be in process. You know, how can, how can I do that and not rush them out of that process to make us feel better? Yeah. Get comfortable yeah, with challenge. being uncomfortable. <laughs> Is that the phrase? Yeah, that's yeah. how it goes. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe, and for me, I discovered that's probably um, a, a big process for me in this is realizing that anxiety is an intolerance to uncertainty. That. I'm anxious because I don't know something. I can't control something. I can't make something happen. I can't predict something. So what we usually do is we try to chase down certainty. We try to make something happen. We get reassurance. I want to fix. I want that feeling. I want to be, I want to know that everything's going to be okay. But really the key to dealing with anxiety is learning to tolerate more uncertainty. To be able to say, I don't know, mm-hmm. and I don't have to. Yeah, that and that's can the be scary so part. hard. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. super scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned a few um, habits that we could get into to manage anxiety. I was wondering if you had any more, maybe from your book, that you could share um, with us or with a listener who maybe has anxiety. What tips do you have? What advice do you have for them in managing when living with their anxiety? Yeah. So great, great thing. So I'd start with, um, I started by really understanding kind of the brain a little bit more, like I mentioned. And I found, and it might sound so, so pedestrian and simple, but um, in in my anxious moments to stop and take deep breaths. Um, we know that deep breathing can flood the brain with oxygen, which I see as like a soft reboot of a computer. Um, you know, when you get that pinwheel of death coming on there or your computer freezes up, Uh, sometimes you just shut it down and restart it again. And I think deep breathing can do that. I also do deep breathing and, and I think about the opening lines of the, 
of the creation story in the Bible of God breathing into humanity, the breath of life, um, how the word in the Bible for spirit in Hebrew is the same word for breath. And just taking a moment, taking deep breaths and not only rebooting the brain, but just kind of stopping in the moment and realizing I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. And even if my anxiety doesn't go away, God's with me. And I think having the, the awareness to catch that moment and take advantage of that moment is big. Sometimes we get quite a bit down the road in our anxiety before we actually stop and go, okay, wait a minute, let me pray about this, or let me think about this. Or we spent the last five minutes trying to kill the anxiety with prayer. God, I speak against it. I, I'm going to stop this. I got to stop thinking this way, or we spend five or 10 minutes speaking negatively to ourselves. But to catch that anxious moment, to feel it coming on when the heart is racing, when the adrenaline comes in, when I start getting shaky, to take a deep breath and to kind of gather myself. That's one thing. The other thing is being a bit intentional about planning ahead. And this goes back to knowing your triggers, um, to actually make a list. What are the things that trigger me? And what is the intensity of those triggers? For some of us, it's meetings with people in authority. For some of us, it's, it's when we're alone at night, you know, lights go out, anxiety turns on, you know, uh, for some of us, it's difficult conversations or conflict. There's a lot of stuff we can actually plan out. I mean, if your meetings are on Thursdays and that's when you get anxious, then you could spend Wednesday differently and you kind of prepare to kind of ready yourself of what you can predict and what you can't predict. So I think knowing your trigger, beginning to track your triggers. I also found when I started laying out my triggers that they, um, they had a lot more predictability than I thought. There were certain days of the week. I found patterns like, oh, I'm always anxious at these times or in these situations. And that allowed me to have people alongside. I would sometimes have a little pre-meeting with somebody I'd be like, okay, tomorrow I got to have this meeting. I'm already anxious about it. Let's talk it through. Let's role play it. Let's uh, let me deal with it. You know. So planning those things out. Um, Hold on one second. What? Be super specific with us. Like this week, is there something that's making you anxious, or you're aware of your anxiety, as you can kind of put it on account, just to help our listeners? Or is there an example? Yeah. Yeah, I can tell you, um, so not this week, but I can tell you um, two weeks ago, I was going to be doing a sermon that I felt like had the possibility of being a little bit more triggering to other people. So I was anticipating, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this message and then somebody's going to come up to me and they're going to be ticked. And then I'm going to want to please them or I'm going to want to argue with them. And I was wired up. Uh, I talked to a few people about it 
that helped. And then I had to stop talking to people because I realized talking to people was just another way that I could ruminate with somebody else in the room. So, uh, sometimes people with anxiety, um, that will be sometimes people with anxiety have found comfort in traditional talk therapy and friendships. Um, but it's also complicated their anxiety because, uh, with people with anxiety, it can be another form of rumination and it can just stir up, uh, stir up thinking. So talking to a few people in advance that morning, I was, I had to do specific prayer about not being able to predict the conversations and not being able to control whether they would happen. Um, the week before I was just being more aware of my body and my need for sleep, my need to eat well, that helped a lot. And then probably the biggest one, and, and this is probably a, a big thing about helping people with anxiety is, um, I had to make a choice not to hide after the sermon. So probably one of the biggest things about dealing with anxiety, the primary treatment method for dealing with anxiety is called exposure and response prevention. And that is if you're anxious about something, we tend to avoid what makes us anxious. When we avoid what makes us anxious, our brain learns to be anxious about it more. So if we want to retrain our brains, to be less anxious, we need to face what we're afraid of. And that's the scariest thing of all, because we're basically facing something we can't control. So you're just going, <clears throat> this is like free therapy for our listeners. So um, we'll say pastoral counseling because, you know, we have real therapy. So, <laughs> so I, I kind of want to come to, there's a person in my life, you know, the hypothetical listener Cause you mentioned that like there's two things like I'm afraid of conflict and authority. So, I mean, just to be personal in my life, like most people don't make me anxious, but there's probably four or five that just kind of are triggers. And I'm imagining with our listeners, like there's four or five people that it's not Alyssa. Don't worry. We're, we're good friends here. Boom shakalaka. But anyways, um, but there's certain people that just kind of trigger our anxiety. And so what I'm kind of wondering from you is, you know, to the 20 year old that has a boss that just makes them anxious or a parent that makes them anxious or, you know, a sibling or a friend who, you know, just 80% of the time they're great, but they get in a bad mood and all of a sudden, how do you help coach someone through that? Cause what you just said there was, you're like, Oh, you need to enter into it, but adding another person complicates it. How would you help someone process their anxiety with another person? Okay. So I would probably start by doing a lot of the things that I said already meeting with, with let's say this hypothetical listener, right. Is I, I would, I would start off by doing my best to reduce their shame. Look, you're anxious. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It's it. This is an anxiety is normal and natural. It's just gotten a little bit out of control and it's not helping you anymore. So you're not doing anything wrong and you're also not choosing to be anxious. Your brain is choosing for you. So you're okay. You're loved. 
and let's spend a little bit of time talking about what that would look like for you. Then I'd want to draw out kind of what anxiety looks like, kind of like what you were saying, Alyssa, of um, like what, what triggers it? What does it look like for you? What's the situation? What happens in your body? What happens in your mind? And then I'd want to go to a little bit of some of the core beliefs behind that anxiety. Every anxious reaction of our mind and body comes with some core beliefs. We get shaky and it's like, oh, that's because I'm a failure and I can't do this. Oh, that's because if I do this, this person will be disappointed in me and I can't handle disappointment. And so we do a little bit of work to say, what are the core beliefs that, that trigger in your brain when you're feeling anxious? Um, and then we do a little bit of kind of like what things have helped you be less anxious or when you're anxious, how do you tend to calm yourself down? What's worked for you? What hasn't worked for you? Some things work for other people. Uh, you know, people have different things that work for them about that, that help them. As we start normalizing some of that anxiety and start doing some self care, how you talk to yourself, how you understand God, how you understand God's presence in your life. As we move from normalization to care, then we want to move toward what's called exposure. And that is if we're going to start learning to tolerate our anxiety, we actually have to face it. And this is where I usually tell people, look, it, it, when you were younger, you were anxious about some things that you're not anxious about anymore. And when you were a little kid, we all had things we were anxious about or that we were scared of. And now we're not scared of it. It could be big dogs or the dark or something. How did we not, how did we get over that fear? We got over that fear because we just kind of dealt with it and we worked through it. And now we're better. You know, you're afraid of the water. You got in the water, you learned how to swim and now you're not afraid of the water anymore. So we know how to do this. So exposure is let's start stepping toward that. So like fear of fear of, uh, let's say anxiety related to authority figures. The first step I would say is let's just talk about that for a little while. Let's just talk about the anxiety that comes with an authority figure, even talking about it. It's Peter, I'm imagining even just me bringing this up, your heart's racing a little bit. You're a little bit, you know, edgy as we start talking about that, you know, you're like, Okay. Okay. And then we keep talking about it. And you go, Oh, this is okay to talk about. Cause sometimes we've never even talked about what we're scared of or what makes us anxious. Cause we're so ashamed of it. Then the next step would be, let's think about it a little bit. Let's imagine being in the room with that authority figure and let's let your anxiety start to come on. Let's, let's get a little anxious just in our heads and then let's try to calm ourselves down. So we're kind of experimenting, you know, in our heads with it. Then you have the skills to kind of normalize and self-care. Then I would say, let's actually try that when you're with that authority figure. Oh, you're anxious. Okay. What could you do in your head and in your heart and with your body? And then when you leave the room, how could you kind of talk yourself down? 
And then you keep doing that. And then you experience what, what they call in the professional realm, desensitization. That means your brain and your body become less sensitive to the trigger. So fear of elevators. Oh, I have this anxiety about elevators. Okay, great. Let's talk about that. And then now let's imagine yourself in an elevator and let's get anxious and then let's talk you down and then let's actually go to an elevator. You have to get in yet. You just stand outside and get anxious and then talk yourself down. And at some point you get in and you get out and then you talk yourself down. And at some point you write it and then you write it until you get really anxious. And then over time, your brain learns. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. I think oftentimes people who have anxiety and who want to expose themselves maybe to this thing that's making them anxious don't have that advice that you just gave. And they jump right into getting on the elevator before they've talked about it, before they've thought about it, um, before they've visited it, um, whatever their elevator is, they kind of jump right into it trying to cure their anxiety uh, or whatever you would call it themselves. So that's great yeah. advice. And they end up having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what a panic attack is. You're just overwhelmed and your brain takes over. And we have a word for like with fear of water, um, what you're describing to just kind of like dive right in. There's a word for that. It's called drowning. You know, <laughs> it's, you just, you dive in. And it's like, I haven't thought about how to swim and how to, I mean, cause you know, swimming is a great example because you get in the water and you panic and panic actually gets in the way of you floating. So there is some strategy to say, what will I do when I start panicking? What will I say to myself? What will I do with my body? What will I do with my mind? All of that awareness before you go in. And of course, that means you actually have to go in. Um, you have to face it, uh, but you can face it little by little baby steps to kind of move into it. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> my daughter, Lucy, we, we just got her swim lessons and either my wife and I have to be in the water with her. And, um, she like for the first two weeks, her lip is just quivering and you know we call her the ceo because she walks in and she owns it but this is like the first time we've really seen this and it's only after week three with mama that when she's in the water like we didn't just chuck her in there with floaties um we wouldn't just chuck her in there at all but even with floaties it was doing a little bit of this and and i'm on video i'm doing like the doggy paddle and stuff and it's just now and you think about that that's that's just a picture for our life so what what i want to do is i this episode's gone really fast you mentioned two things at the early episode i i just kind of can't let go and i just think it's helpful for our listeners you know first of all you mentioned four years ago it's kind of like a mile marker for anxiety um i i mean i'm going to start there paint a picture of what that four years ago was and kind of what led you to kind of say i need to process this more and then i'll have a follow-up question after that yeah i think um so i got this job seven years ago and I, I had high functioning anxiety. So I was able to come to work. I was able to manage, I was able to get stuff done. And I was 
able to theor think clearly and sometimes make decisions very quickly, but but often make decisions slowly. And sometimes that worked for me and sometimes it didn't. I think it got to its worst place when I was working on a, I was working on a sermon and I, I wrote it and deleted it three or four times. And I had been working on it for 16 hours straight. And I, I, I just, I was in a panic mode. And I remember I got on the phone with my friend and I said, I, I, my brain is going nonstop and I can't shut it off. And not only do I, I maybe I made a mistake accepting this job and not only maybe not only am i not doing a good job but i might not i might be hurting people spiritually and maybe they and my family would just be better off without me and right when i said that my friend was like wait what did you say and i was like i don't did i just say that oh my like what am i talking about and at that point i realized oh this is there's something going on in my mind and my heart that i don't even understand but I know I'm not healthy. Um, unable to sleep, stomach problems, restless mind. And then I have a, I tend to bite my mouth, uh, bite my lip and the inside of my mouth when I get anxious. And I was, I was kind of timing it so that I could preach on Sundays. Um, so I'd have to schedule when I, oh, I better not do it. Cause I got to speak on Sunday and then Monday would come and I'd start chewing on the inside of my mouth. So all this, all this stuff, it really got to a place where I was like, man, I'm in a bad place. And all the while on the outside, I was doing fine. Everybody, you know, everybody kind of, I was pretty upfront with the people that were closest to me, but you wouldn't imagine that a lot of that was going on. And I think for a lot of public figures in particular, that's, that's pretty common or, or professionals in their field who have to interact with clients. Um, there's a lot of highly functioning, anxious listeners that you have that because they make good money, they work full weeks, they have the respect of others. They appear to be okay, but we're not, and <laughs> we can be doing a lot better. So. Mm. We're not, um, I'll say that, right. you know, we're, we're not, um, let me, let me ask you this. Cause, um, you brought up <clears throat> a pornography addiction and that might be new to some of our listeners to link that to anxiety. You know, why don't you kind of walk us through how you linked that? Cause some people would say, oh, it might be hurt or it might be something else, but you kind of linked that addiction to anxiety. how did you get there? I think, uh, so I think for me, um, when I get anxious thoughts or I have what's called intrusive thoughts or feelings, right? These are thoughts and feelings that come into our mind. We didn't plan for them. Uh, we don't want them. It just, it just comes into our mind. And this can happen with everybody. This isn't just an addiction thing. This can happen with everybody. Um, we all have times where something pops into our mind that we didn't ask for. I think when I get intrusive thoughts or feelings, then I start getting anxious and restless and I don't know what to do with these anxious thoughts and feelings. 
And the easiest thing for me to do if I can't get rid of them is to numb myself. So I think for me, people pleasing can be a numbing behavior. I think pornography for many years was a numbing behavior. And it's very similar to if you experience pain or loss or loneliness, then pornography can lead to a numbing behavior. Some of us do it with food. Some of us do it with alcohol. Some of us do it with relationships. I mean, we think, oh, I'm, I'm going to start dating this person and it'll be great. But that might actually be an avoidance technique. Like if I can find my identity in another person, then I don't have to deal with the anxious thoughts and feelings that are in myself. Um, so I think for me, uh, in addition to just addiction dynamics, and sin and disobedience and things like that, there's definitely that attempt to numb my anxious heart. And the sad part is it worked. Uh, the sad part is with food addictions, uh, with uh, alcohol, drugs, sex, working out, all those kind of things that we can kind of move from healthiness to addiction. It does numb us for a while, and there is a physiological and neurochemical release that's happening uh, in the brain that, that God's designed for good things, uh, but we can sometimes become addicts to our own neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. mm. Wow. So you did mention a few specific numbing behaviors. What, would you, what advice would you give to someone who may be doing one of those behaviors is there any replacement or anything that they can maybe do instead of trying to numb their anxiety? Yeah, I think in addition to kind of recognizing the anxiety and beginning to take a thoughtful approach to dealing with the anxiety, because that's the case with all addiction stuff. People say, you know, I think the common phrase is alcohol is not my problem. Alcohol is my attempted solution to my problem. Uh, so I think dealing with that underlying, what is the anxiety I'm dealing with? What is it that I'm struggling with that I'm trying to numb out from and getting some help for that particularly? And I think if you're dealing with anxiety, finding someone to meet with that does treatment for anxiety, uh, not just traditional talk therapy, but someone that can walk you through a process of identifying some of those core things and then doing exposure response prevention. Um, so I think identifying that and then, yeah, finding what I would say healthy distractions um, because there are in those anxious moments, instead of engaging in this behavior, you can engage in this behavior. And most of us have things that like, oh, here's a hobby. Or here's a thing that I like to do that not only grabs my attention, but actually makes me feel good completely and scheduling some of that or having it, having it ready. That goes back to some of the planning stuff. Like, oh, I like to do this. Great. Then you should have it ready and know, okay, Wednesday evenings is when I do that thing that will help me because Thursdays are really tough or Thursday afternoon is when I do the bike riding uh, or I get that time with that friend or I do that crafting or, you know, having those rhythms 
built into your life. Um, one of the new theories about addiction is called enjoyment theory. And, and the idea is that um, people tend to get addicted because they're just not enjoying their life. There isn't enough enjoyment, like God-given, blessed enjoyment. So I think sometimes with high-functioning anxiety, uh, you're dealing with highly responsible people with a strict moral code and a lot of feelings of responsibility to people. It's like, so where's the joy in that? I mean, like, do you, what do you like to do to take care of yourself? And that's kind of the, the larger principle of ordering our lives in a way that can prevent some of the unnecessary anxiety that pops up. Wow. Uh, Jason, we're going to have you back. So you, you got an open invitation. This was, this went really fast. So we hope our listeners, you know, there's a lot of good stuff here. So the cool thing is, is we get to close with the question, what does Jesus have to say about why my anxiety won't go away? So Alyssa and I will respond to that question first and like a good pastor, you'll clean up any mess that's left. So, um, maybe we'll be anxious and then we'll transfer our anxiety to you. Does that sound good? <laughs> Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> All right. Should I go first or should you go first? You go first. Um, you know, my wife says this, and I've heard this principle from you, and my wife's a mental health therapist, but, um, you know, we're called to in mental health to befriend our anxiety. And I, I heard a little bit of the principle with that. And I just kind of keep thinking about Jesus. Um, you know, I don't think there was a moment that Jesus befriended somebody when like things were going well. Like, so I even think about the wedding, like he's befriending a group of people that are anxious because the wine ran out. And like, you know, as I'm, I'm leaving this kind of conversation, it, why won't my anxiety go away? You know, in some ways, I, I think Jesus is inviting us to befriend the broken, the painful, even as you said, steward our anxiety well. And that it's a reminder that Jesus loves all of us, not just the great parts, not the future version of ourselves. And in some ways, kind of knowing that helps us with our anxiety. Um, so that's kind of what I'm leaving with. What about you, Alyssa? Yeah, I think my answer for this just comes straight from our conversation and already what I've learned from Jason here. Um, but I just thought of the verse, um, in this world, you will have trouble. So whatever that trouble is, in this world, you will have anxiety. You will have depression. You will have disappointments. You will have addictions. You will have numbing behaviors. Like it's going to be there. Um, is what the Bible tells us. Um, but take heart for I have overcome the world. So I think we don't have to leave it on ourselves. We don't have to solve our anxiety. We don't have to make the anxiety go away ourselves. We can't, um, in this world, we will have anxiety. And I think even Jesus in his hu human form, um, we don't see him often having anxiety, but the one time that I do think of is when he was going to the cross and he said, please take this cup from me. And I think that came from a place of anxiety from not wanting to do what he was about to do, um, from dreading, um, what was going to be coming. And I just think that the question, why won't my anxiety go away? I think the short answer is it won't. Um, and I think Jesus knows that, um, as well as anyone does. But the good thing is we, we can't make our anxiety go away. And that should bring us comfort because that shows us that God can take away anxiety. Um, maybe not in this world, but it, it will and it can happen hmm. through him. 
you can clean that up for us. (laughs) No, that's really great. I learned a lot from you guys. It made me think of when Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Um, He was actually talking to people who had religious anxiety, which is something we haven't talked about. Um, There's actually a form of obsessive compulsive disorder called scrupulosity, which is all religious obsession. Like, am I good enough to God? Have I prayed enough? Do I know enough? Uh, will I go to heaven? People were dealing with religious anxiety. And Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Notice he doesn't say, come to me and I'll get rid of all of those bad feelings that you have. Or I'll give you all the answers that you need to all of your religious questions. Because we know Jesus wasn't really eager to do that either. There was a lot of stuff he just didn't say and didn't answer. What he did say is, I'll give you rest. I'll carry it with you. I think big picture, anxiety is an invitation to get closer to God. Wow. What a, what a place to end. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Where, where can people find you if, uh, you know, if you're there online trying to, uh, and we'll of course tag in stuff like that, but where can people best find you? Yeah, so uh, our church is journeyfaith.com. That's a that's a good place to go. Um, I have um, I have an Instagram account for the Anxiety Field Guide. I think it's the Anxiety FG. I uh, couldn't get Field Guide all the way into the thing, but that's where I post some thoughts and 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 there's a Twitter account. Uh, maybe that's my Twitter account. Anyway, there's the Anxiety Field Guide, which is a I have a Twitter account as well as an Instagram page. Um, and those would be two great places to connect with. Yeah. Awesome. And just a reminder, listeners, IVP, the publisher has been great to us, uh, two for the two weeks after this airs, which is going to be September. Uh, make sure you go buy, uh, the anxiety field guide and you can get 30% off by putting why God, uh, in the coupon section. So, and as always with us, you can find us at why God, why podcast.com. The best way to get a hold of us is to click subscribe. We thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day.